and welcome to the Archimedes Podcast, the Archives of Diseases podcast that looks at evidence-based medicine in paediatric practice, or taking a clinical question, going to the research evidence, appraising it, that is looking at what's good and bad about it, and bringing it back to say, what can we do with this in practice? Now, these are summarized in Archimedes questions and published a couple of them every month or so in the archives. And then in the podcast, we run over the highlights of those and a little snippet of how you might think about trials, treatments, or the practice of medicine using evidence a bit better. For this month, what we're going to focus on is thinking a little bit about different ways of doing randomized controlled trials in pediatrics. Now, the straight randomized controlled trial, the one we normally think about, is a parallel group trial. That is, you randomize to one group or another, and that might be placebo versus treatment. But there's a whole host of other types of designs that might be necessary. For instance, if you had, say, four different treatments, A, B, C, D, that might be helpful, a trial that looked at all of those would be pretty big and last quite a long time. There are other designs where it might be that you start off with all four, but then do an analysis and go, well, which one of these is least likely to be good? And you drop that one from the trial. And then another analysis a bit later, dropping the least good of the remaining three and then carrying on with the last two and heading on with that to see which is the best of those that remained. There's also sort of doing that in the other direction that you start with maybe A versus B, reanalyze and then carry on with the one that seems better, trialing that against the next and then trialing that against the next. And these sorts of responsive types of designs can reduce both the duration and the number of patients you need in order to get to an answer. They're not great for those designs where they're curative therapies or they take a very long time to get the outcome because then it will still be four or five years before you can switch down from ABCD to ABC or whatever. Um, but they can work for many paediatric topics. Another sort of whole group of designs are where you're looking at response enhanced designs. Now, that's a slightly strange idea. But what you do is maybe you randomize patients to get in placebo or treatment. And then the patients that seem to respond to placebo then randomize those to getting treatment or placebo. And the patients who got seem to get response to the treatment, randomize those to carry on with treatment or then get the placebo. And in that way, what you're doing is you're enhancing the number of chances that people have in order to have a response. And it, it gets an understanding a bit quicker of how well this treatment might work. Now, clearly, that is no good for curative treatments. Once you've been cured, you're cured, and you don't carry on getting randomized to another drug, do you? Um, but it is good for a whole bunch of therapies that you might use in a chronic condition that would affect how the disease was, but without really switching the disease off totally. And then there's a third group of different sorts of designs that are even more weird when you start thinking about it. And that is that they don't take the position, the usual equipoise of 50-50 as to whether a treatment A or treatment B works. But you go into it with an understanding that, say, treatment A has a 75% chance of working. And what you do is a similar sort of trial design, but you analyze the results starting from a position of saying 75% of the time we think A is working or you analyze the results of your study and give not just a, well, this is most likely to work with a p-value of less than 0.05, but instead come back saying, well, 
A has a 90% chance of being the best treatment in this situation. These are a group of designs and analyses known as Bayesian approaches, and they're really taking the similar sorts of ideas that we use in diagnostics. I mean, to put it bluntly, if you've got a potassium back of five and the sample came from a neonate where you'd spent half an hour squeezing blood out of their heel, you would feel differently about it than if it was a vast cath sample from a kid on renal dialysis that came in with an achy tummy. It would be based on where you started with to where you believe the answer was. And that's the sort of whole point of Bayesian logic. It's just applied to trials rather than just applied to diagnostics. These are all different sorts of approaches, and you won't see many of them floating around the archives soon. But they do all have some contenders for being a better way of thinking about doing trials in paediatrics. And a better way is a better way of getting evidence into practice. Now, moving on from that, and moving in to the articles that we had this month. One of them, we have a short interview with the author, which is always a lovely thing to do. But the other one is a much more traditional, just me chatting about what was there. The report comes from Harriet Barraclough, who is working at Sheffield Children's Hospital in the UK. The scenario is of a child assessment unit and you see yet another young infant with a history of acute diarrhoea. It's the third one today. And you remember overhearing that somebody said that probiotics might be useful in the treatment of acute diarrhoea. And so in a spare moment of time, you go away and ask the structured question in individuals younger than 18 years of old with suspected or confirmed acute infectious diarrhoea do oral probiotics, and did make me question a little bit how else you might want the probiotics, but anyway, compared with placebo or no intervention, shorten the duration of diarrhoea. The uh, author went away and looked at Medline and Embase and searched extensively, finding 333 potential articles, also looked at the Cochrane database and brought everything together. There were four relevant papers included, um, and that the, the trials that were identified were all wrapped up in a Cochrane review, which had 63 RCTs in it, a different meta-analysis that looked at 11 RCTs and was more specific in nature, and then two further RCTs that came on after those reviews. The papers uh, brought together a vast amount of information, as you can imagine, from a vast amount of different sources. Um, and that it really is the key part to the commentary here. You see, a probiotic, which is defined as a live microorganism, which, when administered in adequate amounts, confers a health benefit on the host, must be a substance which has been shown to have any benefits. So these are a potential probiotics in a way. Pulling those trials together when they, they, they did a meta-analysis in the Cochrane group, it showed that there were a consistent benefit with a, a weighted mean difference of 24 hours or so less um, when using probiotics in acute infectious diarrhea. The confidence interval around that from 16 to 34 hours or so. But within that, there was a great heterogeneity, a great mixedness in the different probiotic strain or mixed strains used, the doses used and the regimes used. So it's difficult to take that and apply it into practice. The meta-analysis that was after the Cochrane review 
uh, built on that evidence, but that focused really on, on, on one specific probiotic, Lactobacillus GG, uh, looking at 11 RCTs that looked at this one use. Again, they came back with a similar sort of idea, one less day of infectious diarrhea. Um, and, and, and the the confidence interval there between about 1.7 to about half a day, a bit wider, fewer trials, uh, and so less certainty involved there. Again, you know, some heterogeneity taken away by focusing on a single probiotic, but differences in doses, slight differences in the way the outcomes are reported. Now, that heterogeneity means that what you should think about isn't just the average duration and the average dose and the average population, but but what might the true value be in a range of different populations using different doses and different strains? Now that would come from the prediction interval. Now neither of these systematic reviews actually produced a prediction interval, but the author here has done uh, using a calculation um, that is easily available off a website and presumably uh, using some brain power as well and came back with a range of potentially, in some areas, using some dosing schedules, it might be three and a half days better, or it might be one and a half days worse, implying that whilst the average effect in an average population using an average regime has a small benefit, it might be that in different populations using particular regimes, you either get a large benefit or no benefit at all. Now, what this argues for, from my point of view, is a further understanding of exactly what benefit do you get when you use it in a particular way. More heterogeneous meta-analysis will not help us understand this, but it might be that more specific studies and more specific investigation of the different approaches may be the way forwards here. Now, for the last part of this podcast, we are moving on to listen to an interview conducted with the author of the other Archimedes of this month. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the second part of the Archimedes podcast. I'm speaking with Tim Van Hessel, who is currently out of programme doing adult anaesthetics. Now, I understand, Tim, that it was your experience in adult anaesthetics that really drove you back into asking this question about neonates and sedation during intubation. Uh, yeah, that's right, because in adult anaesthetics, the drugs they tend to use are completely different. And whereas we might consider in neonatal practice using uh, something like morphine or fentanyl, uh, in adult anaesthetics, you tend to use induction agents such as propofol uh, with that or thiopentone. Uh, so just the way of thinking about it is completely different. And of course, until recently, it was standard practice in neonatal practice, and occasionally still happens in the uh, delivery room, to intubate without any anaesthesia at all, uh, which obviously wouldn't happen in an alive uh, adult patient in anaesthetics. Certainly my experience in neonates was back in the days where we would use morphine to intubate a baby, but it was more about making sure the baby was still rather than anything along the lines of really thinking about their experience. So I appreciate that you have done an enormous amount of work looking at what benefits of the anaesthetic agents to intubate neonates. Can you give us a quick run through? Uh, yeah, so the sort of to structure my search, I used a PICO question. I looked at SAR of a, a baby in the neonatal unit who needs intubation and you're going to give some sedation analgesia and your aims are to improve the condition 
reduce the pain and distress as well. And it also reduced the cardiovascular disturbance that comes along with the pain. So that reduced a, a population neonates require intubation, your intervention, a sedative or analgesic. And I wanted to use a comparator to structure my search. So currently in the UK, we use fentanyl or morphine, usually with atropine and succinothonium. And then the outcomes I just discussed, patient distress and pain, cardiovascular parameters and success rate intubation conditions. So I looked on the Cochrane Library. There was two results. First was withdrawn and the second only examined one study. So then I went on for a full search and that produced 574 on Medline, PubMed and 51 on Embase. So there's quite a lot of abstracts to look through. Yeah, it's a massive amount of work. Did you find what you were looking for? There was a lot of a lot of work and there's a lot of interesting stuff. As with lots of the questions in evidence reviews, there wasn't a lot of really high quality that you could really base your practice on. Um, but I suppose that's the, the interesting part of Archimedes. Yeah, and, and when you've got that situation of really not having the key 17 trials with 30,000 patients in each, how have you found sort of drawing that information together and coming up with a reasonable conclusion for neonatal practice? So what I've done is I've set out the six uh, randomised control trials that use some sedative agents with a comparison uh, that's applicable to UK practice, so sort of morphine or fentanyl. And then I've sort of had to summarise all the other observational studies, pilot studies, studies that compare with awake intubation. In terms of the, the six randomised trials, they vary from one that looks replicate adult anaesthetic practice of what we call rapid sequence induction, and that uses thiopentone as their agent. And then two that we're looking at propofol, which is a very common agent used in adult anaesthetic practice. And then remifentanil in the another three. And that is a synthetic opiate drug, which again is used in adult anaesthetic practice. And is there any particular benefit of using the newer agents compared to the stuff that we've used more often in children. I mean, I have a feeling that if you're starting to use things that aren't used widely in children and then you're using them in neonates with possibly even more different physiology, there's quite a lot of extrapolation going on there. From the sort of results I, I got, there's quite a lot of experimental trials and it feels like we're, we're really sort of, we're still at early days and quite a lot of the trials, have, they're very heterogeneous there's not a lot of similarity in what they're doing, even varying between whether they're doing nasal or oral intubation, uh, the gestation of the babies, whether they're giving it with an anti-muscarinic or a muscle relaxant as well. So it does make it quite hard to interpret, especially with these newer agents, you know, whether we know the safety or the long-term outcomes, we, we really don't have the, the information. Looking at these trials, the, older, the oldest agent actually is, is diapentone. This trial, although it was small, did find that it, it produced much better conditions and more stable parameters than giving morphine, although it was a very complicated protocol with five agents to be given, which they noted some uh, administration errors. Looking at propofol, more common agent, the trials did find, uh, compared with morphine, it was provided good conditions and either better or no difference in uh, the observations, cardiovascular parameters. Although the, the smaller observational studies actually did raise some concerns that it causes hypotension, particularly in the, the pre-terms and the first 24 hours of life. And then the, the newer agent, the remifentanil, 
interestingly, the trials didn't really suggest any benefit uh, compared with morphine. Certainly, fentanyl with uh, muscle relaxant was superior to the remifentanil. And so, when you put all of your sort of experience in anaesthetics, understanding of neonates and looking at this evidence together, you come up with what conclusion? I'm based on the evidence that we've got and how different neonates are. My conclusion was really that the pre-medication regimens we use seem to be equally as effective as any alternatives at this point. At the moment, it looks like the best thing to do is use something, but exactly what you pick is probably going to be guided more by what your area or your own experience is rather than there being a very clear steer from the evidence. Exactly, exactly. And um, at the moment, we don't use a huge amount of agents in neonates. So whereas in adult anaesthesia, they're able to balance all their knowledge about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and select each agent for each, each case, each patient, we're not really at that stage and you should probably follow the local protocols uh, within your unit. Thank you very much, Tim. This is enlightening and bringing different specialities into paediatrics to make it better for everyone. Um, thank you very much. Good luck with the anaesthetics. I hope you do come back to paediatrics. And thank you for taking the time to talk to the Archimedes podcast. Thanks very much.